This morning, we are finishing up a 10-week series on the book of Habakkuk. Now, of course, Habakkuk is only three chapters long, so there's not a whole lot of, of Scripture there, but I've, uh, I've enjoyed this study. Uh, and so that's why if I enjoy a study, I'll make it last six, seven years. I mean, I made the Sermon on the Mount last 19 months, so... If I like it, I can do it, and uh, I've really enjoyed this study. And I'm not going to really get into the history and where we're at. We're going to get a little bit of that later on in the message, but I don't want to really refresh everything about Habakkuk. But if you if you haven't really listened to all of them and you're interested, you can listen on uh, either, of course, Facebook or, or we've got them on SoundCloud and, and iTunes. And really on SoundCloud, I have a, a large following. I'm huge in Oregon, so all my Oregon listeners, greetings. Uh, I get like a thousand listens a week from from Oregon. It's weird. I don't understand why. Uh, but anyway, uh, so you can you can catch up and listen to that. But I kind of wanted to just finish up this study on the book of Habakkuk. And if you've you've been with us these last ten weeks, we're going to see that the prophet he ends the book of Habakkuk completely differently than he started the book. So let's jump right into the scripture. Habakkuk chapter number three, verse number seventeen. The Bible says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be on the vines. Now I want to stop right there because I want you to understand the picture that Habakkuk is painting. Now remember, when he started the, the, the prophecy in chapter number 1, uh, the nation was doing pretty good financially. They were doing pretty good socially and militarily. Now, they were, very, they were in very huge idol worship. There was wickedness through the land. But you know, politically speaking, financially speaking, they were doing pretty good. And he comes to God and God tells him, I'm sending these, this trouble, I'm sending judgment, I'm sending the Chaldeans to ruin you and destroy you, and they're going to destroy land, and famine is going to come. And so he's, he's now he's looking forward. Now remember we said last week, chapter number three is a song. So he is singing these words, but he is painting a picture of what the future looks like for the nation of Israel. And it's not a pleasant picture. When the fig tree produces fruit... It produces a blossom right next to the fig that it grows. And the blossom turns into next year's crop. So he's looking and he's saying there's no fruit on the tree and there's no blossoms on the tree, which means there's not going to be fruit next year either. What he's saying is not only is there no fruit this year, but there's not going to be any next year either. It is bad today and it's going to get even worse later. So he, he's already saying this is not going to be a quick thing. This pain is going to come and is going to stay for a while. He has no illusion that this pain, this hurt, this difficulty will end anytime soon. So let's keep reading back in 17. It says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. There shall be no herd in the stall. So he, he's painting a very bleak picture of Israel's history. In this time, if you didn't have crops growing in your field this year, you had no seeds to plant next year. Now today, if we, we plant some tomato plants and they don't grow next year, we can just go to back to, the, to, the, to True Value or back to Lowe's and buy some more tomato plants. We can get some more seeds. In this time period, if you didn't grow wheat, you had no seeds to put in the ground next year to grow wheat next year. So if you had, a, had no crop, that meant at least two years you weren't going to have any crop. 
It was a bad situation to be in. And then he talks about the sheep and the oxen being in the fold. What he's saying is, hey, if the, 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 if the sheep don't get along with each other, if the sheep aren't acting married, there's no sheep next year. If mommy and daddy's sheep are having marital problems, there's no baby sheep. And you got to have baby sheep. So he's like, look, we, we, got no, we got no crops this year. We're not going to have any next year. We got no young uh, livestock this year, which is going to hurt us next year. It's just, it is a bad situation. Habakkuk is having a bad day, and he realizes it will not end anytime soon. Sometimes the Bible can be brutally honest. Sometimes we are in some very dark days. As we look ahead, it's even darker. We're in a difficult situation. We're in pain. We're hurting. And we look ahead and we say, it just, I, I don't see an end in sight. I don't see how the pain's going to end. And I know people in this church, they're going through that right now. They're going through very dark days right now. And looking ahead, they're going to get worse. And that's just the way it is. It's, there's, there's probably not going to be any light at the end of the tunnel for a long time. So for maybe months, maybe, maybe years, they're going to have some very difficult times ahead of them. And that's a very difficult place to be in. And that's where Habakkuk is. He's looking ahead saying, it's bad right now. And it's going to get worse. And it's going to be bad for a very long time. That, that's a hard place to live in. That's a hard place to be in. So put yourself in a back excuse. You know that pain is coming, and looking ahead, there doesn't seem to be any end. Maybe you're there now, maybe you have been there, or maybe you will be there soon. But that is a hard place to be. So let's look at Habakkuk's response to this. In verse number 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That's drastically different from chapter 1. When he comes to God and says, God, I don't like what's going on and you're doing a bad job and I'm not happy about it. Now he says there's, there's pain coming and it's going to be here a while. I'm going to have a lot of hard days ahead of me. But I'm going to rejoice in God. That's a, that's a completely different way than he started. He goes, yet will I rejoice in the Lord and I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord, the, the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hind's feet and he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on the stringed instruments. Now remember, again, let's talk about the stringed instruments. This is a song that Habakkuk is singing in response to everything that God had revealed to him in chapters 1 and chapter 2. So God told him judgment was coming, Habakkuk, and there's no way out. Remember, in chapter 2, you know, God comes to him in chapter 1 and says, hey, I'm sending judgment. Habakkuk says, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. And he goes, Habakkuk, write it down on stone because it's happening. There's nothing you can do to change this. It's going to come. It's going to be bad. And it's all because I love you, which was a difficult thing for Habakkuk to understand. But he's, he's singing praises to God. He is praising God for the pain. He is praising God for the discipline. That is a long way from where he started in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he's angry. He's confused. He's trying to correct God. He's telling God, God, you don't know what you're doing. Now he's looking at the pain, he's looking ahead and he's seeing no end in sight, and he says, God, I will rejoice in it. God, I will praise you for the pain. That right there is Christian maturity. That is growing 
in your relationship with God. Now, a lot of us, especially if you've been in church any length of time, you have an idea of what Christian maturity looks like. You may even think you're a mature Christian, and I'm not here to tell you you're not. I'm here to say, you think you're mature, but you ain't. You may not be, but that's, up, that's between you and God. But we all have these ideas about what Christian maturity looks like. Now, Christian maturity is not as easy to achieve as we think it is. It's not as simple as we like to make it. So one of the things that we think is a mark of Christian maturity is knowing the Bible. Right? I mean, we can agree with it. Someone who knows the Bible, they can, they can quote Scripture, they know the stories, they've studied. Someone who knows the Word of God, they have matured in their walk with God. Now, knowing the Bible, I'm not saying that if you know the Bible, you're not a mature Christian, because as you grow in Christ, you should learn the Bible. And so knowing the Bible is something you do as you mature in Christ. But knowing the Bible isn't just the simple, well, I know the Bible, so now I'm mature in Christ. We all know people who know the Word of God, they can quote Scripture, but they don't look anything like Jesus. I know people who take the Bible and use it to beat people up, to tell people how horrible they are and how wrong they are and try to correct. And that's not what the Bible is meant for. That's not why God gave it to us. So, well, they know the Bible, so they must be mature in Christ. No, because they don't really act like Jesus. So knowing the Bible is great. We need to know the Bible, but simply knowing the Bible doesn't make you a mature Christian. To the purpose of knowing the Bible is not to know how to make someone feel bad or to, how to try to make someone, to try to correct someone, or try to prove you're better than someone. The purpose of knowing the Bible is to know Jesus. The entire Bible is about Christ. Everything points to Jesus. Knowing Jesus, learning of Him, becoming more like Him is the entire point of the Bible. I said this time and time again, the Bible is not about you. The Bible is about Christ. The Bible is about God's incredible love and His redemption of mankind. Let me show you this truth from the Bible. Jesus Himself said it in John 55, 39. He said, search the Scriptures, for in them ye think you have eternal life. And they, which, and they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here, and he goes, hey, you need to search the Bible. You need to search the Scriptures. Now, what Scriptures is he talking about? The book of Matthew? They didn't have the book of Matthew. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. He's saying, search, the old, search Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and Ruth and all that. He goes, search the scriptures and in them you will see me. Everything in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, points to and is about Jesus. You know what the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, you know what it's about? It's about Jesus. You know what the, the story of the flood, Noah and the ark, you know what that's about? It's about Jesus. You know the story of David and Goliath? You know what that's about? It's about conquering your, your biggest... No, it's not. It's about Jesus. You know what, what everything in the Bible is about? It is about Jesus. The Melchizedek is about Jesus. He tells them, search the scriptures because you think that in, in the scriptures, in knowing the Bible is what he's telling them. You think in knowing the Bible, you have eternal life, but you're missing the point because the point of the Bible is to point you to me because I'm the only one who can give you eternal life. You don't get close to God by knowing a bunch of facts and figures and knowing all the history of the Bible and knowing all the Greek and Hebrew. He goes, you get to know God by allowing God to show himself to you through the scriptures. 
So I'm saying is this. If you think the whole point of the Bible is simply to know the Bible, then you're not a mature Christian. If you understand the whole point of the Bible is to know him, that's maturity. That's studying the Bible for the right purpose. Both groups know the Bible, but one group has the wrong motive for it. Another, another thing we think is a mark of Christian maturity is behavior modification. Well, I used to cuss like a sailor. I still cuss now, but not as much. That's growth. I used to, used to drink a, a lot. Now I don't drink, but, but a little bit now. That's, that's growth. I used to do all these things, and now I don't do them. I used to yell at my wife and kids all the time. Now I only yell at them when they do something wrong. That's growth. I am changing how I behave. That means I am maturing as a Christian. And so what happens is we set the bar really low. And any growth, any attempt to get over that bar, we're like, hey, look, I'm a lot better than I used to be. Now, look, as you mature in Christ, will your behavior change? Of course it will. It's supposed to. But, and we all know this, you can change your behavior without getting close to God just by having willpower. It has nothing to do with you and God. It has to do with you just, I'm going to change because I want to change. So as we mature in Christ, we will change our behavior, but we don't change our behavior to gain maturity. Look what Paul said in Galatians 2.21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So what we do is we take behavior modification and go, now I'm living right, now I'm going to church, now I'm not watching pornography, now I'm not cussing unless I'm driving down the road or football's on. That's growth. I am maturing in my relationship with God. Now that could be true, but again, it's also true you can change your behavior without actually getting to know God. You can change your behavior with willpower, and it doesn't mean you're free. See, it just means you've changed your behavior. Rightness with God cannot be achieved by simple obedience to the law. If we could become right with God by obeying the law, then Paul says Jesus died for nothing. But Jesus did have to die. Because righteousness with God is not achieved through anything that we do. It's only achieved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, being, his righteousness is imputed unto us. Now, once we accept him as our Savior, should our behavior change? Yeah, the scriptures talk about that all the time. The scriptures say, hey, if you say you've got Christ and you're no different, then you need to check your salvation. The Bible teaches that. But we can't say, I'm a better person than I was yesterday, so now I'm, that means I'm a good Christian because I'm doing better. Now, if you're doing yes, you could be, but what's the purpose behind it? Is it because you're actually growing in God or because you just want to prove a point? You just want to have real good willpower. Is Christian maturity knowing the Bible? Yes and no. Is Christian maturity changing your behavior? Yes and no. In the text in Habakkuk, he gives us a clear picture of what Christian maturity really looks like. So let's read the text again, and we're going to point, it to, point out two marks of Christian maturity in the life of Habakkuk. So again, look at verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, 
The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer upon the stringed instrument. So what we see here is one mark of Christian maturity is, number one, joy is found in God. Habakkuk says, my joy is not found in my situation because my situation is about to get real bad. My joy is not found in my possessions because I'm about to lose every single one of them. My joy is not found in my, 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 my relationships because these people may die. My joy is only found in God. If you look back to the chapters 1 and 2, Habakkuk and his comfort, his desires was the main goal. When we first meet Habakkuk, he doesn't find his joy in God. He finds his joy in him. He finds his joy in what he wants. And his joy was in the fact that Israel was going through revival and people were loving God. And when that went away, he lost his joy. So he's complaining to God, God, why would you take away my joy? Why would you take away what was making me happy? God, make me happy again. That's how he starts off the chapter. He doesn't care. What God wants, in fact, he thinks that what God wants is wrong, so he's trying to correct God. His joy was found in him. His joy was found in his desires, in his wants, in his comfort. He didn't care about knowing God. He didn't care about worshiping God. He didn't care about loving God. He begins this book by telling God he wants justice done on Judah because he is frustrated with what they're doing and he's frustrated with God for not executing justice. And then God tells him, I am executing justice on Judah, just not in the way or the time that you want it, but I'm still doing it. Then Habakkuk complains to God that he is executing justice against Judah, but he's doing it in the wrong way. Justice wasn't his desire. He didn't want justice on Judah. He was trying to make God meet his own selfish needs, his own selfish desires. And look, his desires weren't evil. He, he wanted revival. That's an incredible thing to want. And it's not like he had evil desires. He wanted revival, but he wanted it for his purposes, not for God's glory. So when God says, I'm sending justice, and it's going to be painful, it's going to be bad, and people aren't going to like it, he goes, no, 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 God, that's going to hurt me. That's not what I want, so you can't do that. The mature Christian doesn't try to use God like a genie in a lamp to give them joy. God is the foundation of their joy. God is the pursuit of their joy. God is what they desire. God is where they truly find joy peace. Because no matter what is happening, if your joy is in knowing God, in worshiping God, in walking with God, in loving God, no matter what happens, your joy will never be taken away. If your joy is in people, people get taken away. If your joy is in money, money can get, go away. If your joy is in possessions, you can lose them. Your joy is in your health, it can fail. But if your joy is in God, no matter what happens, you'll always have joy. No matter what's happening, their joy is in knowing God. So people do this all the time. I'll be faithful to church if it'll save my marriage. I'll tithe if it helps me with my finances, helps me get out of debt. I'll, 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 I'll love God if it'll help me with my kids. I'll walk with God if he'll fix the problems that I have. 
It doesn't happen and they, they feel that God betrayed them because he didn't give them something he never promised them in the first place. The end goal of Habakkuk at the beginning wasn't God, but what he thought God could do for him. What God could bring into his life. That his joy was not in God, but in what he thought God could offer him. And that is a dangerous place to be. Every joy can be taken from you except the joy we have in God. No matter how much you try to keep it, it can just all disappear. When tragedy strikes, when you lose your health, when you lose a loved one, when the bank account dries up, when you get fired from your job, when your business tanks, when you're rejected, when all that you've built your worth on and all you stocked your joy in, joy in is stripped away from you, then you are in a difficult place because your identity is lost. If your greatest joy is in your spouse, what do you do when your spouse dies? If your greatest joy is in your spouse, what do you do if they, they leave you and abandon you? Your greatest joy is in your kids. What do you do when they go to college and get married and start their own family or reject you and turn away? Our joy should not be in things. Our deepest joy should be in God. If you build your joy on those things, when they're taken away, you can rebuild it. But it's rickety because you're always scared it's going to be taken away again. Well, my first husband died, but I got the second one. And so I found new joy. But what if, what if he dies? What if he leaves me? What if, I, what if I'm abandoned again? So you may say, well, I got it back, but it's always sketchy. If your joy is in God, no matter what happens, you always have a foundation of joy because you know God never will leave me. God loves me and is always there for me. If you build your joy on Christ, if you trust in Christ, if he is your greatest joy, then you can suffer loss and still have joy. Jesus, as your greatest joy, serves as the firm foundation that can be, be rebuilt, rebuilt upon and your trust can be reestablished. Because if our, our joy is not found in God, we don't view loss correctly. Because we don't have our true joy in God, we don't view suffering correctly. Loss, suffering, pain, all of it is a way to draw closer to God, to learn more of God, to love God more, and to worship God more. Look at what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying, since Jesus is my greatest treasure, anything, whether it's good or bad or difficult, anything that gets me closer to my treasure is something to be rejoiced in. You know, Paul's a guy that could rejoice in God giving him a thorn in the flesh. He says, I, I had a thorn in the flesh. I went to God three times. God wouldn't take it away. So I will gladly suffer for God because it gets me closer to God. That doesn't happen with us. We won't out. We call people to pray. Pray that this will be taken off of me. Pray that God will remove the pain from me. Not Paul. Paul says, this gets me more Jesus, so it's a good thing. He goes, I've been learned to be content in all circumstances. If I've got money, I'm going to praise God. If I'm broke, I'm going to praise God. If I preach and people receive the gospel and people love it, then I'm going to praise God. If I preach and they try to kill me, I'm going to praise God. He goes, if, when, I, when, I, when I go on and get on a ship and the ship makes it safely to port, I'm going to praise God. When I, when I get on a ship and I'm shipwrecked and I end up on an island and start preaching on the island and the snake bites me, I'm going to rejoice in God. Look, if I get bit by a snake while preaching, I'm done. I'm not rejoicing in anything. 
I'm, if a snake, I'm gone, first of all. But Paul's like, hey, if, if, if everything works out great, I'm going to praise God. If my life is falling apart, I'm going to praise God. Because when my life is falling apart, I get more of God. So I will thank God for the pain. That's what Habakkuk is saying. Saying, God, the pain's coming. And it's not going to be pleasant. It's going to hurt. There's going to be tears. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be heartbreak, but I know that through it all, I get more of you, so I will thank you for the pain. That is Christian maturity. Mature Christians rejoice in pain because pain gets them more of Jesus, and Jesus is their source of their joy, not their circumstances. I'm not talking about a fake smile and a fake praising of Jesus. There are tears there are heartache, there's wounds, but in them there is joy in Jesus. If, you're, if, you're, if Christ is your greatest joy, then all the difficult circumstances of life push you to him. If he's not your greatest joy, then whatever you're, you find your joy in is danger being taken away from you, and you will find yourself broken. Christ can never be taken from you. Everything else can. Everything else can be stripped away. So the first mark of Christian maturity is finding your joy in Jesus. What's the second mark? Well, let's look at Habakkuk chapter uh, 3, verse 19. It says, The Lord God, He is my strength, and He will make my feet like hinds feet, and He will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on the stringed instruments. So what's the second mark of Christian maturity? Well, the first one is our joy is found in God. The second one is our confidence is found in God. Here's what Habakkuk's saying. He's saying, God, pain's coming, and I, I tried to fix it, and I couldn't. So God, I, I just want you to understand, I cannot do it, but you can. God, I'm going to get out of this valley, but it's only because you're going to get me out. God, I'm going to, that's what he says, my, hand, my feet are like hind's feet, my, like deer's feet. He's going to spring and have joy again. He goes, God, I'm going to have deer's feet again. I'm going to have joy again, but it's not because of anything I'm doing, because I can't do it. It's all because of you and what you're doing through me. God's going to get me to the high places. God's going to get me out of this valley, and God's going to get me up on the hills. He began the book with confidence in, his, in himself, in his wisdom, in his abilities, and now he's gotten to the point where he understands, God, I can't do it. My confidence is completely and totally in God. That is growth. That is Christian maturity. One of the main truths of the entire book of Habakkuk, what God is trying to get us to see is this right here. You are not awesome. You're not. I know you think you are. You are not awesome. And neither am I. But you know what? God is. So I don't have to be. I don't have to be perfect. Because I can't be perfect. But I've got God, so I don't need to be. You know, we all like these rags to riches stories where someone pulls himself up by their bootstraps and accomplishes great things. We need to get to the point where no matter what happens, we can say, God, I don't have to carry this because I can't carry this. But God, you can. You'll provide. So I'm putting my confidence in you. That's what Habakkuk is singing. 
He is singing, God, carry me through this. Even though there's no fig trees on the vine, even though there's no blossoms either, though there's no cattle in the stall and there won't be any next year, God, you be my strength. God, you do what I cannot do. Habakkuk has gone from a man that says to God, do this for me, to a man that says, God, you do what you want to do and I'm going to rejoice in you. He went from trusting in himself to having confidence, to have, from having confidence in himself to having confidence in God and trusting God for everything, even when pain was coming. He had matured in his Christianity. You have to answer those questions for yourself. Are you a mature Christian? Do you find your joy only in God? Or is your joy in other things that can be taken away? Is your confidence in you and your ability because you've done pretty good for yourself? You're successful. You've, you've got a good marriage. You've got, and you've done, so you're pretty good, so you can trust in yourself. Or is your confidence in God and God only? What's the foundation of your joy? What are you really after? Where is your strength? What are you really confident in? If we honestly answer those questions, we'll see where we are on the scale of Habakkuk from chapter 1 to chapter 3. Are we trusting in ourselves or are we trusting in God? Is our joy in ourselves or is our joy in God? Have we matured in our walk with God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father.